Well, good morning. So I'm going to uh, wrap up our series this morning where we've been talking about what we as elders really believe the Spirit is calling us into as a family in this next season. We've said it this way, where we be people who are becoming fervent in living and speaking the truth um, in love in our cultural moment. Got all that out? All right. But really, as we think about that, I want to talk about um, that that can in some ways seem individualistic. But I want to also talk about how we do that as a larger family. Obviously, we're doing that in our missional communities. But one of the ways that looks, and what I want to talk about this morning, is that we would become a, a church planting hub for this city. We talked about this last year, uh, some that, that if we're really going to see the kingdom reality and the kingdom advance in our city and the kingdom saturated and, and our city saturated with the gospel, it's going to take many churches and many people declaring and living out the truth of the gospel in the everyday all throughout the city. And we believe that as a family, God is calling us really to be a resource um, for other churches to be planted. And not just churches that we plant like Soma Venice and hopefully others, but, but other churches in the city. Other churches in the city have been reaching out to us often. And really, um, by God's grace, this is happening more and more. And, and church planters and churches are coming to us and asking us for help to, to help work with them and help them establish the truth of the gospel and establish healthy churches in the city. And, and the good news is you guys are all a part of that. It's not just us in leadership that get to do some of that work. Um, you guys are a part of that in, in freeing us up to do some of that work, but also really by being living stories of abundant life in Jesus that we, that we get to tell and other people come in and get to experience. And so I wanted today, if you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of Acts chapter 2. Um, and I want to look at, at this first church in the book of Acts and to really discuss what they were about um, that led them to becoming a church that planted and equipped many other churches all throughout the known world of that time. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, you'll know that um, it falls right in, in God's story. It kind of picks up right after Jesus defeated sin, and he defeats death, and he rises from the dead. And in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, we see Jesus teaching his followers um, about the kingdom of God, and then, then he commissions them. It's really kind of the end of the chapter of Matthew and Acts 1 kind of run together. Um, and he commissions them to really to do the kingdom work of making disciples who make more disciples, who would then image God in the everyday things of life. And so right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells them that the Spirit is going to come upon them and that they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so this follower, um, this group of followers, about 120 people at that time, they wait and they pray for the Spirit and the Spirit comes upon them and it, it fills them and it, it falls on them and, they, and these 120 people pour out into the city and they speak the truth of the gospel all day long. They just go out and they speak in different languages, languages that they've never even spoken before. And as this is taking place, sometimes I think we think about the story just was like just an hour and they just went out and then all of a sudden, boom. This was like an all-day thing, right? And then finally, uh, people are trying to figure this out and they're like, what is going on? Are they drunk? What is going on? All this stuff. Why are all these people talking about this? And Peter gets up in the middle and says, let me explain to you what's going on. And he gets up in the middle of this crowd and he shares about how Jesus is actually God. And how Jesus is the God-man, the Messiah, and, and he's the one that God sent to save and redeem the world and restore the brokenness. And we have this amazing part of the story where, where as Peter speaks, and I, I'm sure it wasn't just this altar call where 3,000 people come forward. It's probably all the people that are out working and teaching the gospel um, see people come to Jesus. And 3,000 people are baptized and come to Jesus in one day. Somebody should cheer for that. that. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. That's what happens. And, and so what happens right after that is where we pick up in chapter 2 and we see these 3,000 people now try to figure out what does it look like for us to live and be established as God's people. Really, they didn't know they were the church, but that's who they were. God was establishing His church. And He brings us Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what they did after this. This is what these people were about. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, that may be a familiar passage to you. You've probably heard this story before. But as I read this story, like, I get excited. Like, I, like, I want to be a part of that. I want to live in that. I, I, want, I want that to be something that's a reality right here and right now in our city. That's what I desire for us. The attractiveness of this community that we see in Acts 2 still grips my heart to this day. And I'm so glad that really over these past eight years that we've been able to, as a church, kind of experience some of those things. Some of those things that we saw here in Acts 2. And as as your leaders, we are going to continue to strive in the strength of the Spirit to build and call us as a family to be that type of community. To be that type of community here in Los Angeles. And that's really part of what it means to be a church planting hub. We want to be that community and we want to help other people grow in that and other people see that and, and get to see Jesus. I think if we look back in, in chapter 2, there's four things that this, this first church was committed to. Really, four things that they continually devoted themselves to. Four things that, that maybe you can say were their natural rhythms in life. And they were, they were fervent in living these things out in every moment. Right? They, they were continually devoted to something. They had their constant focus on these things. I kind of think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever watched any uh, like animal shows where like the lion is like hunting down this gazelle who's like dancing around out there. My my dog does this sometimes when 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 we bring out our little hamster. Like every bone and like eye, like Pinky's eyes are big, right, and one's a little crooked, um, but like. He's like focused on that hamster, like his hair kind of raises up, his muscles start to twitch like this, like, right? Like, that's what you see the lions do, like, they're getting ready to pounce on their prey. The lion really is, is devoted to making sure that his prey is captured. Now, Pinky never captures this thing because we're very careful of that, um, but that's really, that's really the idea that this first church was devoted to that, right? They were making sure that their whole life, every waking hour, was about these things. I want to take a look at them. So verse 42, the first thing that we see they were devoted to um, was the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. So what were the apostles' teaching? Well, they were teaching what Jesus taught. If we look back to the Great Commission, I said this was kind of in line with chapter 1 in Matthew 28, the last words of Jesus to his followers, he says to make disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So very simply, Jesus says to his followers, go out and teach what I taught you. Now if we look at what Jesus taught, we'll see that he taught what his Father was about. And what his father had always been up to since the beginning of creation. And really since the beginning of fall, that God was, was producing, I'm sorry, pre, what's the right word? Pursuing relationships with humanity. He was about bringing about restoration into the brokenness. And as we think about Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teaching, he was primarily concerned um, with the internal, with the conditions of their hearts. He wasn't so concerned, so concerned with the external stuff. Really, this is the reality of what God was concerned about. 
because Jesus is God, and so they're concerned about the same thing. And so since the fall, God has been after changing hearts. Changing hearts to, for people that would then turn and worship Him rather than all the other things that we think are more important and we run to for worship. And so Jesus taught the truth of who God is so people would see Him as the only one that is worthy of love, the only one that is worthy to adore, the only one that is actually worthy to worship. But there is other aspects of Jesus' teaching as we think about Jesus' teaching, the apostles were aware of this as well. And Jesus didn't just teach, and, and he just didn't want people to come and listen to him and, and get a bunch of information and soak up a bunch of insight about God the Father. He actually called people to change the way they were actually living. Take a look at Matthew chapter 7. And this is Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 7. And he, he gives a parable here, and he talks about this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So the idea is if you hear what Jesus says and you actually put into practice what he says, that's the mark of a wise person. It's like someone who builds their house on a rock, someone who has a good foundation, who's living in the truth of God. Verse 25. And the rains fell... And the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. It's this idea that when all the things of life come down your way, notice here that the people that are following God's ways, they go through all the same, they go through the storm, right? But when all the things of life come down to you, you have a deep understanding of who God is. And you then live out of that truth and you know how to live regardless of the circumstances around you because your focus is actually on God and your foundation is in what he says about you and who he is. Verse 26, as this is really the other side. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So it's this idea of if you're listening if you're, maybe you, you listen to great sermons all the time, you podcast somebody else, um, maybe you, you go to, to Bible studies, um, maybe you're, you're reading your Bible all the time, and you may say, I'm devoted to Jesus' teaching, but if you don't put any of it into practice, this is what you're like. You'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You see, the idea of being devoted to Jesus' teaching involves heart transformation that then results in action in someone's life. It's a both hearing and a doing of what Jesus said. You can't have one without the other to truly be devoted to Jesus' teaching. We've said this before, but discipleship is not just learning a bunch of information about God. It's actually allowing the reality of those truths that you learn to change the way that you live. Likewise, just doing a bunch of things, a bunch of functions of the church, or being a good person without the understanding and the foundation of who God is and not actually ever studying about who God is, that's just a religion or moralistic law. And that's not actually Christianity. Christianity is actually that you get a whole new life because you need one. And now because of who God is and what he's done, it changes everything because out of that new identity, you then live and think how to live life. And what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is this church family was both committed to knowing what Jesus taught and actually doing it. They were a community of people who would, every time after they heard something read or they studied something or they heard the scriptures explained, they would look at one another in the eye and say, how are we going to live this out? What does that mean for us? We're committed to doing what it says. And as I think about this, I want to call us to be that kind of people. To be those kind of followers of Jesus, that we would be people that, eager, that are eager to learn about God and people that are eager to walk in His ways. 
Brad shared this two weeks ago, but as a family, like we've been fairly inconsistent in making this time a priority. And I know this is not the only time that we learn about who God is, and I know this is not the church. I've talked about that a thousand times. I've been preaching that since we started. Um, but this is a time that we've intentionally structured our time so that we would focus more upwardly on who God is, and we teach each other the truths of God, both as we read Scripture and as we pray together and as we sing together. And it's important that we actually make this time on Sunday in a priority in your life. It's not that, like, I care about or we care about the numbers in this gathering. We care because we want you to grow in your understanding of God's love for you. We want you to know more about who He actually is. And we want to encourage you to be consistent, to come on Sundays, and encourage others to be consistent to come on Sundays, and to come with, a, with really with the spirit of saying, I want the Spirit to teach me. And we come with this attitude of, like, Spirit, teach me today what you want me to learn. Even if it's something I've heard before, teach me the deeper truth of that. Remind me of who I am. Help me to grow in my understanding of who God is and so, that, so that I would then live in His ways. And I want to say, if, if we're going to be a church that plants other churches, we're going to need to grow in our understanding of who God is. This is vitally important to see church planted, church planted, because we want churches to actually be planted on the foundational truths of God. Churches that are planted on the foundational truths of God so that in the midst of of any cultural storm that, that comes by, that continually try to undermine the foundation of who God is. That really is that is a man-centered agenda. So the man-centered agenda could be lived out rather than a God-centered agenda. We need to know and be founded on the truths of God. And so if we're going to be that type of church, we need to make sure this is important, that we're actually following and listening to the apostles' teachings. One of the ways that that we as elders have decided we're going to help grow is not just in this time, but but in the start of of March. We're going to be offering um, eight-week theological classes. These are going to be college course-level classes for for deeper learning, for for training in the Bible. We don't really have a name for it yet. We kind of had a discussion about this this week. I I think we call it seminary, but, (laughs) but some other people like... Want to call it this like Jurassic Park thing? Um, how do you, what's, what's the name of that? Tyrannos, Tyrannosaurus Park, something, Tyrannosaurus School. It comes from another part of the Bible. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> if you come to this class, you'll know what Tyrannosaurus means. Um, Tyrannosaurus is not, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> anyway, if you are interested in that, we want to encourage you. Um, to grow in the understanding of who God is this year. And so this will be classes that will happen throughout the year. Um, You'll have homework. You'll have to do some reading. Um, You'll come ready to interact on things. Um, And if you're interested in that, you can talk to Brad. He'll give you an application. There's actually an application process. Um, So that's why it's called seminary. You've got to apply to go. Um, But anyway... This church was, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Um, The second thing we see here is they were devoted to fellowship. Um, They were devoted to fellowship. In the church that I grew up uh, in the South, um, when I went to high school in the South in Virginia, we we had a fellowship hall. And it was a place that, like, was down in the basement. And, like, afterwards, like, kids would just run crazy in there. Um, But every once in a while, we we would have, like, a potluck meal together. And we would have a fellowship, right? Anybody had one of those somewhere? Yeah, okay, good. I know I wasn't alone. Um, but but we were, we were going to fellowship. We were going to hang out. We were going to have an ice cream social. That was always my favorite. Um, I don't know why, but, um, but that's not what's going on here when it says fellowship. This word fellowship actually has, has a bigger meaning. Um, it means to have things in common, to be partakers of a common thing. There's a picture of this in verse 44, and it says what it looks like. It says, they had all things in common. All right? This doesn't mean that they were in the same stage of life, or that they all liked the Avenger movies, or, um, or they all listened to Maroon 5 while they were like, watching the Rams play in the Super Bowl. Right? That's who's playing, if you don't know. Um, 
And it's not like they had, it's like they just had lots of things in common or they liked the same stuff. That's not what this is talking about. Verse 44 says they had all things in common and their whole life was in common. They shared everything. This is really a a radical picture of that, that all the stuff that they owned, they actually saw themselves as stewards of, not their own, and it could be used by anyone who needed it. And this wasn't just some like hippie commune, um, right? This was, um, they lived this way because their greatest commonality was that they actually shared the grace of Jesus that had called them into their life. Jesus Christ's grace was their greatest commonality. And so this definition of fellowship really is, is really, you can maybe think about it this way, life shared with Jesus in the middle. You have Jesus in common, so therefore you have everything else in common. And you're, you're sharing because of what Jesus has done for you and what he's given to you. So they were committed to doing life together. It wasn't just about, about a few hours on a week, uh, on a Sunday, or, or maybe a, a dinner once in a while, once a week. It was, it was a time uh, where living life in community all throughout, where they were sharing and they were partaking of everything all together. In John chapter 13, um, 35, Jesus actually talks about this prior to this. This is how they knew about it. Actually, in John chapter 13, 35, Jesus says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is a great definition of what it actually looks like to love one another and to care for one another and to say, everything I have is yours because Jesus has given me everything that I ever needed. It's really the the greatest apologetic for the truth of Christianity is when believers actually care for one another. This is uncommon in our culture. We are a people that are always about ourselves. And when we are caring for other people, it often doesn't make sense. So I want to just stop for a second and maybe ask this question. What are some ways that you have actually experienced that reality within your missional community or within this church family? What are some ways you've experienced this reality where where people have cared and shared and, and loved you that way? Moving. People helping you move. Yeah. People move around the city all the time and are always looking for movers or paying them. Yeah, but we get to be family that way. Yeah, good. Borrowing chairs and rides to the airports. Okay, yeah, good. Don't put that on Facebook, Brad said. Yeah. What else? Yeah, caring for each other when, when we're in times of need for, for meals. Yeah, we've experienced that in our own house. Yeah, what else? Families sharing homes. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a big apologetic when you guys actually share homes together intentionally so that you can then share the good news of Jesus with others. That's not normal. Most times people just share homes just out of, out of having to for, for financial reasons. And sometimes we do that because that helps as well, right? But, but we get to do that with intentionality. Yeah, thinking about and caring for one another as family, even on holidays when we just like, oh no, I'm going to go back to my biological family. Yeah, good. What else? Somebody was over here. Sharing and gifting of cars. Okay, yeah, sharing and gifting of cars. Yeah, if you need a car, there's always a car in this community. <laughs> there is.
Yeah, these aren't just physical things as well, right? Yeah, we're actually sharing and caring for each other's souls in the midst of that. That's a huge, that's a huge thing as well. Yeah, good. What else? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's just a testament that we got that when I wasn't able to do things like that, we had family to do that for. Yeah, that's good news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just having open homes where we're willing to, to host people that we don't even know yet. Yeah, good. Friends to play with. Yeah, for sure. We're inviting people into our homes all the time, and we actually enjoy one another. That's kind of crazy, <laughs> right? That people would actually enjoy one another in the city and not just be about trying to get something from them. Can I tell you, these are the things that our city needs to see. And as a church planting hub, we need to actually teach them. Because the fellowship that, that we just talked about and that we've been able to experience is not the norm. It's not even the norm often in Christian circles. There's some of these things, but it actually requires teachings. Churches and, and followers of Jesus actually need to be taught how to live in his ways. Not so that churches will be structured like ours, that doesn't really matter to us, but that really this reality so that Jesus will be made much of. See, when the world sees these things, they may say that looks a little crazy or weird or different, but they also say that it's actually attractive. And they say, I want to know more about that. I want to actually be a part of that. There's no rational explanation for it. I, I, I wanted to find out about that. And when they come and they become a part of those things, we tell them that it's actually Jesus breaking into the, to the world and he's restoring the world. And we ask them if they want that kind of restoration in their own life. You see, we can't just live this way. We have to actually talk about it. We have to remind people that the re- only reason why we live this way is because God broke in and restored us. And now we get to live a restored life. And we say, do you want to be a part of that? Not just a part of this community, but do you actually want to be a part of the restoration in your own life? I think sometimes we forget that third part. One of the ways that, that we, uh, as a family, have, have hoped to train others up through this way is, is through Soma School. Uh, last year we hosted Soma School, um, where churches, uh, church planters and pastors and leaders from around the country and, and from the city and from, and from the state came and were trained in missional living. And many of you hosted them in your homes. And actually, that actually played a huge role in actually teaching them what their, how to live out a gospel life. How you lived with them and how they lived within your homes as they watched you was the biggest part of the teaching tool. It wasn't just the stuff that we taught them during the day. And one of the things I want to encourage you in is this summer, we're going to host a Soma school, um, but it's not going to be for adults. It's actually going to be for teenagers. Right? Why teenagers? I don't know. Right? Because we actually need to think about training the next generation of leaders who actually understand what it means to be the church. And I want to say this is vitally important if we're going to see gospel saturation in our city and around the world. I want to just give you a few stats. You can put that slide up there um, if you want. Um, but statistics tell us that over 50% of actually pastors where they feel called to the ministry comes between the ages of 14 and 21. Actually, if you look at the stats of actually when people come to Jesus, it's usually prior, it's most of the, I think it's like 80% of people come to Jesus under 18 years old. You can put the next one up. The, the, the majority of, of, these, of these pastors who become leaders in churches, they grew up in a church, and over half of them grew up in a church in under 200 people. 
that they considered healthy, and three-quarters of them actually attended some type of youth ministry activity, whether it was through the church or some parachurch organization. And I want to say, we have got to invest in teens if we have a vision for this city. If we have a vision for this city to be reached for Jesus, we've got to start partnering more and more and investing more and more in teenagers. It's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about this in our missional community, and we partner with Young Life, is because we want to see teens who know Jesus and teens who don't yet know Jesus understand and be discipled in his ways. And so this summer, um, as a church, we're going to host 30-some teenagers um, the last week of July. And so far, we have teenagers signed up from Pennsylvania and Arizona and Texas and some from Los Angeles. And we're excited to see what God is going to do. And I want to encourage you to pray for those things. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, God tells us to pray and ask for more workers for the harvest. I want to ask you to pray for teenagers and pray for more workers for the harvest in this city. I know this may sound a little bit cheesy, but, but a, a week or so ago I was with a guy and, and at 10 o'clock, well actually 10.02, his, his phone went off, alarm went off, and he said, can we stop right now and pray for workers for the harvest? He said, something that, that me and my church are doing is, is that every day at 10.02, um, our alarms go off and we all pray for more workers for the harvest. I want to encourage you to join me in doing that this year. I've put an alarm on my phone. It's over there. I'm not going to do it right this second. But if you have your phone out already for your Bible app, you can just flip it up. I'll let you right now. I'll give you a couple seconds. You can flip it up, and you can put an alarm for 10.02. If you're, a, if you're a, not a morning person, 10 way too early for you, put it at 10.02 at night. That's okay if you're still up then. Um, but I want to call us as a family to stop and pray for more workers for the harvest. It's something that I think is really vitally important if we're going to to see um, God grow this church and grow gospel saturation in this city. So this first church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. The third thing they were devoted to was the breaking of bread. If we look at other places in the book of Acts, you'll find out... um, that groups really small enough to fit into homes were, were eating together a lot, probably daily. And while they were eating, they were remembering Jesus. There's, there's really two things going on here. Uh, one is they're, they're eating together. They're, they're sharing meals together. And the other is that their they're breaking of bread is commonly used in, in the New Testament and all throughout other parts of Acts to, be, to describe communion. So what they were doing is every day they were having meals together in their homes, and probably at the, the end of the meal, they would, they would have the bread and the wine, and they would point to them and say, we know that what these symbolize, because Jesus told us to remember him. He said this is his body that was broken, this is his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, and they would celebrate communion together. They were really people that were devoted to making sure that every day they would declare their need for Jesus. They would declare their need for Jesus, and they would declare his amazing provision for them. This was a a gospel-centered, Jesus-centered community that every day would continue to say, isn't it amazing what Jesus has done for us? Verse 46 says that they they were eating with gladness and sincerity of heart. This, This English word for gladness really doesn't... It kind of just really scratches the surface of what the original word in Greek here means. It literally means leaping, jumping, and rejoicing, and shouting for joy. It's really this idea of extreme jubilation. I'd say that's a little bit more than gladness. Right, last, last year at this time, uh, I got to experience this with my family. The Eagles finally won the Super Bowl, right? And, and we jumped up and down. We cheered. We cried. My brother sent videos of him like doing all these dances, right? Like we said to one another, we've got to get together. We've got to go to the parade. My brother and I stood out in the freezing cold in Philly for like seven hours as we waited for the team to come by, and then they gave some speeches, right? But this is what they're talking about, right? They, they were jumping around and saying, yes, yes, yes. Do you know what Jesus has done for us? This is so amazing, Hallelujah! There was much jumping, leaping, fist pumping, whatever you want to say. And at every meal, they were excited about what Jesus had done. 
Now, I don't know about you, um, but oftentimes our family dinners don't look like that. But this idea, this is really the idea of what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread. I want to take just a couple minutes right here and train one another in this. I want to practice this for a minute. What are some things that Jesus has done for us? And every time it happens, we're going to say yes, or we're going to say hallelujah, we're going to fist pump somebody beside us. We're going to, we're going to actually be excited about what Jesus has done. All right? We can do this. Daniel's shaking his head. He's ready. What are some things Jesus has done for us? He's made us righteous. Hallelujah! That, that is an amazing thought, right? We were completely unrighteous, completely dead in sin, and Jesus made us righteous. That is amazing. That is an act of God. Yeah, what else? He sent His Spirit. Yeah. Somebody give me that. Yeah, I'll take that. Right? He sent His Spirit. He's taken our shame. We no longer have to live in shame. That is amazing. What else? What's that? He loves us. Yes. God loves us. The unlovely, he loves us. His enemies, he loves us. Someone say amen. Please. Yeah, what else? He takes care of us. He takes care of us. Yeah. Scripture says he provides everything we need for every moment that we walk in life. So we talk about this vision of like walking in every cultural moment, like God has already said he's given you everything you need for that moment. That's amazing. What else? He made a way so we could be with him forever. Right? We don't have to live in this brokenness of this world. For all eternity, we're going to spend with God fist pumping one another and saying, God is amazing. Right? What else? He conquered death. Yes. He rose from the dead. That's pretty amazing. A dead guy there. I'm coming back to life. That's pretty amazing. We should say yes more about that. Yeah, what else? He adopted us, sons and daughters. He brought us into his home. Yeah, right? Yeah, he brought us into his home, made us his sons and daughters, and not just like gave us a little room in there, but gave us everything that he has. That's way bigger than what we can even think about. Yeah, what else? We're going to keep going. He showed you how to forgive. Yeah. You know, anytime anyone forgives someone in this world, that's a picture of God. Whether they know God or not, that's amazing. We get to celebrate those things. Yeah, what else? Every day when I turn away, he calls me back to him and welcomes me with open arms. Yeah, he continues to pursue us. Yeah. Yeah, he's that father that is out waiting for the prodigal son to come. He's out waiting every day out in front of the city gates so that the people in the city gates won't condemn him and he runs out and gathers us back. Yeah. Yeah. He gives us strength. You know, that's the good news of the gospel. We said it's for eternity, but it's also for the now. Right? That all these things actually are true. I'm going to go on because the kid workers are going to be waiting for us. Um, But we should be doing this more. Right? Really, when we go to communion, we should be doing this at communion where we're telling each other, we're reminding each other of the truth of God, and we're saying, Amen, thank you, Jesus, I'm so grateful, this is amazing, I can't keep stopping talking about it, blah, 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 right? That's what we should be doing. All right, final thing they were devoted to was prayer. Really, based on what we see throughout Acts and throughout um, the rest of the New Testament, is devotion to prayer means that they were continually devoting themselves. They were praying all the time in every situation. Basically, they were people known for praying. I'll just give you a couple here. In Acts 1, we see that they're praying 
in expectation, waiting for God to answer the prayer to send the Spirit. In chapter 4, we see them praying after God did amazing things and begging Him to do more amazing things. In chapter 9, we see them pray at scheduled times in the, in the temple. So they had times when they say, we're going to come together every day, maybe 10 or 2, right? And they're going to, we're going to pray in the temple. In other places in Acts, we see them praying all different times. At one point, we see them praying in the middle of the night, and Peter miraculously gets freed from prison. They were a praying people. They praised God for His goodness, and they begged God to continually to do more work. And they got to see God answer it. Verse 43, many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. They asked God to do supernatural stuff, the stuff that only God could do, and they actually got to see it happen. That's pretty crazy. That's amazing, right? I've said that three times today. I've got to stop that. It's like becoming a habit. One of the miraculous things that they got to actually experience was people coming to Jesus daily. Verse 47 says that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't know if you ever think about that, but that's amazing that they actually got to see people come to Jesus every day. Any day, God, anytime God rescues and adopts another kid, that's something that we get to celebrate. And I, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. I want to be a people that desire that, a people that pray for that, a people that actually believe God has the power to do that in his city, not just say, yes, I believe he has the power to do it, but actually truly believe that God can change this city and God can change our kids and God can change our coworkers and God can change our neighbors and God can change our friends and God can change everyone in this city. I don't want to settle for what we've experienced so far. And I don't want to diminish anything that, that God has done in this church, but I want to be a part of something greater. And I want to call us to be a part of something greater, to be a part of a, a community of people that are for each other and for our grander mission. A community where there's, there's daily compassion and sharing of, of, of self-sacrifice that's, that's purposeful, and there's an action that, that leads to many people coming to Jesus and the kingdom reality becoming real in the city. Can I say... Really, that's what everyone in this world longs for, whether they know it or not. It's what everybody dreams for. In fact, the language that, that Luke actually uses here in the book of Acts is very similar to this Greek philosopher of the day named Pythagoras. And he uses this in his writings, the same type of language to describe a utopian society. And if you ask anyone what they would like for this world, it always describes the same exact thing. You see, what is true is pretty common knowledge for everyone that's living. If we live for ourselves, it's only a path of emptiness. And people everywhere want to be a part of a group and want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They want to be a part of people who actually share life in a meaningful way. It's why there are so many clubs and organizations and, and groups to join in our culture Everyone has this innate desire for living in this manner described here in Acts 2. Everyone wants to be a part of something that is bigger. And the good news is that because of Jesus, you and I get to experience that. And not just in the future, but we get to be a part of it right here and right now. And the question that we really need to wrestle with, I think, is, is this question. Why do we want to be a part of it? Is it because we want a better life or is it because we want more of Jesus? I think it's really easy to look at these things in Acts and you kind of just see them as a prescription for a healthy church. If you just take these four pills every night and you do these four things in your life, you're going to have a healthy church and it'll be all great. And, and, and we desire God's blessings, I think, sometimes more than we actually desire God. I think it's easy for us to get askew and, and be devoted to teaching and to studying God's Word just to increase our knowledge. I, I want to I study the Bible because I, want to, I like information. Some of us really like information and like to learn, and that's, that's an amazing thing. That's part of being an image of God. But if it's just to help you be smarter or feel more important about yourself so that we can think about someone else differently then we've actually taken those things and we've used those to define us rather than 
than what God defines about us. I want to say some people like fellowship because they're lonely. We all want to feel accepted. And as soon as that's not the case where we don't feel accepted, we bounce to another community to find acceptance. I think sometimes when we think about prayer, prayer can easily become about praying to make myself either acceptable to God so God will approve of me, or praying to get what I desire from God. This idea of eating with people sometimes sounds great as long as they're doing the inviting and they're cleaning up and they're giving me the food. Right? Remembering Jesus in communion. Maybe we only just kind of flippantly do that each week. Or maybe we just, we don't, it just becomes something that, that just is a part of what we do in this gathering rather than actually remembering our great need of Jesus and how amazing his gift is for us. You see, when we see these four things as just a prescription, they can easily become about us and our own selfish desire and how we desire life and this utopian kingdom more than we actually want God. I want to live in this awesome society, but I don't want to live under someone else's leadership in order to see that happen. I want to say it's not enough to say, yeah, let's be an Acts 29 church. Acts 29. We're at Eric Park, Acts 29. Let's be an Acts 2 church. Right? Let's be an Acts 2 church that plants other churches. It's not enough to just say, let's do these four things. A lot of people want to be an Acts 2 church, but the reality is, if you're going to be an Acts 2 church, you've got to be an Acts 1 church first. Right? We need to ask, why were there 3,000 people in Jerusalem devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer? What was true of the 120 in Acts 1 that made 3,000 people devoted to those things? I think if you look back, there's a couple of things that are evident. First thing is this. They had the gospel story in, front of, in the forefront of their mind. They had lived. They had walked with Jesus. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. They knew his story. They knew the grand narrative of, of how God made the universe and created humans in his own image. And he had... A, after they rebelled against him, he has a plan to restore them back into relationship. They knew that in order for all of that to happen, God had to come as a man and live a sinless life so that the righteous could freely be given, the righteous could freely be, righteousness could be freely given to messed up humans. They understood that he was going to have to die as a sin offering so that our sins and everyone else's sins could be heaped on him and then ultimately he would rise from the dead and defeat death and defeat the curse of sin. This church knew the story, they knew the gospel and they lived it and they lived in light of the great story of what God has always been up to since the very beginning of time and when they understood that story it caused them to love Jesus more than any other thing. We really need to live in light of the story. Secondly, they not only knew the gospel, but they knew they had a mission. The last thing we see Jesus say to them, this 120, is, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus gave them the task of making disciples of all nations. And they felt the weight of that mission. And out of love, they gave up everything they could to accomplish the mission. I wonder how often we think about the vast mission of actually reaching all of Los Angeles. I know we say it up here on Sundays, but we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep it in front of you so we don't lose sight of Jesus' call because the same call that he gave, that he said, I'm sending you at 120, he says to you and to me after he calls us into his family. This Acts Church, one church not only knew the gospel, they not only knew they had been given a mission, but they had the Spirit. Right? God himself dwelling in us, empowering us for his work, and reminding us of our desperate need of him. The good news is that, that when we actually live a gospel-centered community life on mission, these things in Acts 2 will actually describe us as well. 
You see, when we're, when we're a gospel community on mission, we will actually realize that we regularly need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are. And so therefore, we will study and we will know the story and we will live in light of the story and the gospel will always lead us to more action because we'll be hearers and doers of the word. We'll be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the teaching of Jesus, of how we live and who he is. See, if we're, if we're a community that lives this way, we're going to quickly realize that we need one another. That this mission that God has given us will drive us to care for one another. So we'll be people who fellowship together, who hang out together, who share our resources, who have everything in common. And we'll desire that because the gospel will give us the need for it in the mission that God has called us to. And because of the spirit that he's given us, it will empower us to live this way. And so we'll be devoted to fellowship. We'll regularly eat with one another. And our meals will actually be celebrations. There's going to be much jumping and fist pumping. right? We're going to need to regularly remember Jesus is the bread of life who gave his body and shed his blood so that he would satisfy the hunger of our souls. We're going to quickly realize that the mission we're called into is going to require supernatural power to accomplish. Making disciples in our own wisdom and our own power is impossible. If I look around this room, you know, 120, 130 of us, that's a lot more than 18, that's a lot less than 18 million. Right? It's going to take supernatural power for God to accomplish something in this city. And the reality of that will call us to fall on our knees and to pray and to beg and to ask the Spirit to do His mighty work in our lives and the lives of others. The only one that can do it is Him. And the good news is that Jesus laid down His life so that all of this could be possible. The King became a slave so that you and I who call on His name might have a place in His kingdom. And the only place that we get to run to is that we get to trust him and that we get to live a life growing in his love for us and his love for others. And out of that great pour of love into us, we then live. And I want to encourage us, it's not heavy. Jeff mentioned this last week. We get to feel the weight of it by seeing what's out there, but we don't have the responsibility to hold the weight. The Spirit is the only one that can supernaturally do these things that we've talked about. The Spirit is the only one that's going to teach these teenagers this summer. The Spirit is the only one that's going to call your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers and your children to Jesus. And we get to call on Him and ask Him to do His work. And as we live this life, we get to say, Aren't you amazing, God? Let's celebrate that together. We're going to go to communion, um, and we're going to do that. Uh, Father, we thank you that you not only just tell us how to live and show us how to live, but you give us your spirit to empower us to live in your ways. Father, I pray for us as your family. Father, I pray that you would send more workers to the harvest. Father, I pray that you would multiply us, that you would grow us, that you... Um, would grow us, not for this church's sake, but for the kingdom advancement here in the city. Father, we ask that you would plant many other churches in the city. Father, we ask that those of your followers in the city would be um, impacted by your gospel. Father, we know that we are not your only family here. We don't have all the answers, but we know that you do. Father, we pray that you would help us to point people to Jesus. Father, we thank you that we get to live in these ways. Father, pray that you would do more amazing things than we could ever think or imagine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.